0: If we've never met before, I know there's a lot of new faces that have been in at Riverview lately, and so if we've never met, my name is Tony Boscarino, and I am one of the pastors here. And currently we are in a series called Tethered from the book of Mark. And the heart of this series is that we would not just simply be connected to Jesus, but tethered to him, meaning stuck to Jesus in the way that we live our lives, depending on him, listening to him, walking with him, and going on the adventure of becoming his disciple. And we are not even a third of the way through the book of Mark, and his disciples have witnessed some absolutely incredible miracles. If you missed last week, Anthony preached on the time when Jesus and his disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a huge storm just erupts. The disciples, they're freaking out. They think they're going to drown. The wind and the waves are so powerful that they're coming over the boat. The boat is sinking. It's starting to fill with water. They're, they're worried. Jesus is not worried at all. He's sleeping in the back. They go to Jesus, wake him up. He stands up, and he just speaks to the storm and says, Peace, be still. And immediately, everything just dies down, and it is calm. And his disciples in the boat are like, Who is this guy that speaks to nature and nature obeys? It is incredible. And that's just a part of their adventure because what we're going to see today is that right when they get off the boat from the boat with the storm, they land upon the shore and their adventure continues as they become face to face with a man who is possessed by not just one demon, but many, many, many demons. And that is the story that you all showed up to hear about today. So I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you about it. And uh, if you would pray before we dive in, we'll just ask the Lord to speak through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we just come before you. God, just recognize that you are Lord, you are King, you are powerful, you are over all things. And God, I pray now that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to receive the truth of your word. God, I know that if it's just me talking about you, um, no one's life's going to be touched or transformed. It's your spirit that does that. So I just ask now in the name of Jesus, God, that you would speak through me, um, lead me in what to say and how to say it, and just that every person here would be encouraged and challenged by you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Mark chapter 5, and we are going to start in verse 1. And I just want to read verse 1 really quickly and then just kind of set up our passage for today. So Mark chapter 5 verse 1 says, they, which is Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And so I just want to pull up a map because I love to see where they were. Right? So that little red marker is where the Sea of Galilee is. But this is a modern day map. So you can see, we've got Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Israel. This is where Jesus walked. So let's go into that next little picture. So this is a bigger picture of the Sea of Galilee. And right where that marker is, is about where they think that Jesus and his disciples came up on the shore. Now, one other thing that we have to realize about this particular area during Jesus' time is that it was largely inhabited by Gentiles. So they were not Jewish people. They didn't um, follow Jewish customs, and they did not worship the Lord over all creation. So that is where Jesus' disciples wash up on shore. Let's go to verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... Immediately <clears throat> there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones <clears throat> so let's talk about this guy for a minute what was his life like what did it look like bad yes thank you helen <laughs> horrible <clears throat> he first of all he lived among the tombs now the tombs were cave-like rooms that were cut into the rocks in the nearby hills literally he was living in a graveyard He was living in the place of the dead. Just think about that for a moment. Where he made his home was where they took the dead and decaying bodies. He was living in the place of death. His home was a cemetery. Just think about that. Like he was deranged in his mind. Secondly, he had superhuman strength, he couldn't be bound. Because no matter what people tried to do to restrain him, he just busted right out of it. doesn't matter if it was a rope or a chain, he just broke it. No one could subdue him, which means that most likely there had been many human attempts to subdue this guy. But what we have to realize is that human strength had no power over him. Thirdly, it says that day and night he was crying out. The Greek word used there for crying out means inarticulate screams. So high-pitched, like, in, unintelligible screams. Like, in your mind, think of the most blood-curdling sound you've ever heard, and then think about listening to that constantly. I mean, that would be creepy enough during the day, but it also says this was also through the night. So imagine just being in your house and just hearing this blood-curdling scream outside but nearby. Everyone in this area knew who this man was. Everyone would have known him. And lastly, it says he was always cutting himself continually with stones. So this man, his body must have had cuts all over, probably all over his face, his hands, his legs, everything, just bruised and bloodied. If you read about this account in the book of Luke, in chapter 8, he actually adds the detail that this man was also naked. So he didn't have clothes on either. I mean, it's incredible the condition that this man had. And when I was doing research, I came across this New Testament scholar. His name is William Lane. And he just has this quote. I think we'll have it up on the screen too. But it just says, This account of the demon-possessed man, more graphically than any other in the Gospels, indicates that the function of demonic possession is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. According to Scripture, we all have been created in the image of God to bear the image of the Creator. But we also have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy every single aspect of us. So what we see here is that Satan has turned this man who was created in the image of God into something that is other than human, like more animal-like. He's constantly screaming, he's naked, he has cuts all over his body. And this is the man that they're about to meet. Verse six. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, real quick, just imagine this in your mind. You've gotten off the boat with Jesus, you're stepping on dry ground, and then off in the distance, you see this crazy man screaming. He's completely naked, and he is running right at you. Like, in my mind, I'd be like, oh, what is going to happen? I would just think, man, this is going to be crazy. You know, are we going to fight? What's going on? Thankfully, he doesn't want to fight. He falls at the feet of Jesus. And I think what that is showing is that he recognized immediately that Jesus was the superior authority. He takes the position of a beggar and bows at Jesus' feet. Verse 7. Let's keep going. And crying out in the loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Notice that the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And his response to being in Jesus' presence... Is one of fear. In no way is there even a hint of like a power struggle that's going on here. The demon knows who is in charge. There is no question about it. And if you're taking any notes, I, we can just have this up here. I think it's important to know this and write this down. But Jesus is completely superior to all other spiritual forces. I feel like sometimes in our mind we think that we've got Jesus in this corner and Satan in this corner and there's going to be a battle and we'll figure out who wins. No, Jesus wins. God is over all things and we have to go to Jesus and trust in him and in his power. James chapter 2, if you're reading it, talks about the demons. They know about God and they shudder. That is what is happening right here. And he calls Jesus son of the most high God. Now, the Most High God was a name that was often used for the God of Israel in the Old Testament. So he's calling him this title and saying, Son of the Most High God. He knows who Jesus is, and he begs him, begs him not to torment him. What's interesting here is that the tormentor, the demon that is just wreaking havoc on this guy, is begging not to be tormented. It's like the script is totally flipped now because the one who really has all the power is here. So what does Jesus do? Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" And this is this is creepy if you think about it. He replied, "My name is Legion, for we are many." Did you catch what's happening here by the way? Jesus is not talking to a human man. He is talking to the demon inside of this guy. And this is where we find out that it's not just one, but it is many demons. So this guy has many demons active in his life. And then one demon is serving as the spokesperson to talk to Jesus. And he says, legion, for we are many. Now, Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men. Now, I don't know if this guy had 6,000 demons within him. We don't know. What we do know is that there were a lot. We know that for sure. And actually, there's multiple places in the Bible where it talks about how multiple demons can influence one person. In Mark chapter 16, it talks about Mary Magdalene and how you know, she was a woman that multiple demons had been cast out of her. And so this is actually something that we see in Scripture. So what does the Legion want? Verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Did you see how now we don't have just like one spokesperson demon? Now they're saying us, send us. So you've got multiple demons now speaking to Jesus, which is interesting. And they beg him not to send them out of that region. What they're saying is, don't send us to our final place of imprisonment. Let us stay here. Now, why they wanted to stay in that area, the Bible is unclear. We can only speculate. But biblical theologian Thomas Constable, he suggests that maybe they wanted to stay in that area because possibly that area was infested with demons. And you can make a case for that. Because again, I said at the beginning, this was a largely Gentile area. So they, it was filled with people that didn't know the Lord, didn't love the Lord, didn't serve the Lord, didn't worship the Lord. And so it was probably an area filled with tons of darkness. We don't know for sure, but that's possible. And as the area was largely filled with Gentiles, it was also filled with pigs. The Jews were not to be around pigs. They weren't to eat pigs. In their law, pigs were seen as an unclean animal. But for Gentiles, they had no issue with pigs. And it seems like they were like many of us in this room. They enjoyed a little bacon from now and then, then, right? So what's interesting is that we have unclean spirits begging to go into unclean animals. So what does Jesus do? Verse 13. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in place. Or drowned in the sea, sorry. So don't miss it again. He gave them permission. What does that speak to? The fact that Jesus is the ultimate authority, that he is in control, and they do what he wants or what he allows them to do. But just picture this scene with me. I feel like sometimes we read the Bible and we just read it and we're like, oh, okay, that's interesting that happened. But let's just think about it because when we slow down with scripture and we really think about what that, what's happening and what that looks like, it gives the Holy Spirit opportunity to then open our eyes to speak the truth about Jesus to us. So let's break this down. First of all, this is a huge amount of animals, 2,000 pigs. Just think about how big that is. Like, I've seen maybe 20 or 30, you know, pigs together. Some of you maybe have seen one or two, a couple hundred. Imagine seeing a herd of 2,000 pigs on a nearby hillside. That is huge. Now imagine hearing Jesus say, okay, you can go over there. You look over at those pigs and instantly every single animal, all 2,000 at once, rushes down in the same direction down a steep hill. Think about that. You're just watching this, like what the thunder of that. You've got 2,000 pigs, all their hoofs, and they're like stamping to run down. You can feel the ground shaking, right, as they get there. And then you're just watching, and they go into the sea, and then you see all the sloshing around of the water, and you hear the squealing of the pigs, and it's just going crazy. And then all of a sudden, like one by one, they start going under the water until it is calm. That in itself would have been incredible to witness and think about. But let's take a step back. Why would Jesus allow this to happen? Why did he give permission to go into the pigs? Why did they go into the sea? Well, again, we don't know, but some biblical scholars give some ideas. And one of them is this biblical scholar named Warren Wearsby. And he suggests that by doing it this way, Jesus gave proof To all the spectators, that a miracle of deliverance had taken place. What Wearsby is doing here is he's looking from the vantage point of the people, that maybe Jesus did it this way so that the people would see and know without a doubt that Jesus has all authority, Jesus has all power, Jesus cast out the demons, and they are gone and vanquished, and now this man is not who he was. That's one idea. I also like this idea from an Irish theologian named Richard Trench. Uh, he was from around the 1850s, he suggested a different option that was coming from the vantage point of the man who had been set free. He says this, it may have been necessary for the permanent healing of the man that he should have this outward evidence and testimony that the hellish powers which held him in bondage had quitted their hold, which is old time language to say maybe Jesus did it this way so that the man Who had been so subjected to these demons for years, the demons that had wrecked his life, he got to see with his very own eyes how they are destructed forever, and Jesus has forever set him free. That it would be part of his testimony that he would know, Jesus set me free. I saw it before my eyes, they were completely gone. And I love how personal that is. That Richard Trench guy, he even talks about how, you know, he reminds us that when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and Moses parts the Red Sea and they run through on the dry ground, once they were all through, they looked back and watched as the waters just took under the Egyptian army that was trying to get them. The Israelites that day knew that that enemy was gone forever. This man, by seeing those pigs, could know that what had its hold on me is now broken forever. Forever. For whatever reason, it would have been an incredible sight to see and possibly really terrifying if it was your job to take care of the pigs, right? Now imagine sitting in the shoes of those people. You are in charge of 2,000 pigs and all of a sudden you watch them all together run down a sea bank into the sea and they're, they're gone. If that was me, what I would do is I would hightail it back to my boss and tell everyone I saw, this was not my fault. This was not my fault. And that's exactly what they did. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled, and they told in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that happened. These guys were responsible for 2,000 pigs which I'm sure equated to a bunch of money. And in one instant, they're gone. So they run and get everyone and say, come back. This is not my fault. <laughs> you know, that's where they are sitting. And what happens when they come back? Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. Now, look, think about this description. They see him. He's sitting there, clothed, And in his right mind, and they were afraid, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So let's break this down a little bit. Now remember, all the people in this area, they knew about this naked madman with superhuman strength that screamed all day and lived among the dead. Everyone knew him. Now they have to contrast that image of what they knew about him with what they see now. And they see a man who is sitting, which is really like a posture of rest, a posture of peace. He's not roaming around crazily like he had, but he is at rest. He's clothed He's no longer naked, looking like a wild animal, but his dignity has been restored to him. And he is in his right mind. There's no more screaming. There's no more cutting of himself. And this is a beautiful picture of the restoration, the freedom, and the transformation that Jesus offers. Every one of us, whether you've had direct demonic influence like this guy, and we totally believe that that does happen still today, Or maybe you've just been stuck in sin and you couldn't get free. Jesus wants to transform you. He wants to transform people. It's like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It also showcases John 10.10. I kind of mentioned this verse verse earlier, but it says the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, as Jesus is talking, I have come that they may, it should be have life, and have it abundantly, that they may have life and have it abundantly. But instead of seeing the beauty and the power and the love of Jesus to set people free, Scripture says that these people instead were focused on fear. They were afraid. And I think that there are two reasons for their fear. First, they had witnessed something that was so supernatural, I just don't think they knew how to handle it. This is the same reaction that the disciples had earlier in that 24-hour span when they were on the boat with Jesus, and they realized this guy speaks to the weather, and the weather does what Jesus says. When that happens, they had fear. And actually, the Bible uses the same word to describe the fear of the disciples with Jesus in the boat with the fear of these people after this exorcism that they get to watch. But I think that there was a second fear at play. If you look back at verse uh, 16, it says, They heard about all that happened to the man, and Mark is very specific in his writing. He says, And to the pigs. They heard about all that happened to the man and the pigs. It's like he's saying they knew everything and then they heard what happened to all their pigs. Many scholars point to the fact that the 2,000 pigs would have been a huge economic loss for that area. And again, quoting Warren Wearsby, he says this, The owners had one main interest, business. And they were afraid if Jesus remained any longer, he would do even more damage to the local economy. He says, our Lord does not stay where he is not wanted, so he left. What an opportunity these people missed. It seems to me that these people were more nervous about how Jesus would impact their bottom line than about the healing or the peace that he could bring to their souls. And it reminds me of a verse we're going to get to in a couple of weeks in Mark chapter 8 which just says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? And that's what's happening here. Jesus wasn't wanted, so he left. And what's so interesting is that we have no other record in Scripture that he ever went back to this particular area. He never went back to that area, which is, I just find it so interesting. These people rejected Jesus, and it wasn't because they didn't believe that he had power. They, did, they, they knew he had power. They knew he had authority But they rejected him because they feared what he might do to their lives if they invited him to stay. And I'm guessing there are probably people in this room that are like that too. Maybe you know about Jesus. Maybe you've even seen him work in someone else's life. But you have not invited him into yours to have his way because you fear what he might change. And I really want to speak to you this morning. Because this is the absolute truth. When you truly surrender to Jesus, he will mess with your life. Jesus will mess with your life. He will ask you to let go of control. He will ask you to trust in him with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. He will loosen the death grip that you have on money and ask you to place it all at his feet so that he can do whatever he wants with it. He might ask you to move, to quit your job, or simply to forgive someone that you absolutely hate. He will do these things. But in so doing he will save your soul. He will give you a free ticket to heaven and he will show you a life of joy and peace and abundance that you did not think was possible. But the truth is, he will mess with your life. But it is so worth it. It is so worth it. If you feel like Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart or maybe he has been for a long time, don't tell him to leave. Don't ignore it. Don't be like these people that rejected Jesus. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to really just surrender to Jesus at the end of this message. But before I do that, so just like think about that. Just like sit in that for a moment. Where are you at with that? And we're going to finish off the passage. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons. Begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone else in that community, they wanted Jesus to leave. But the man that Jesus had set free wanted it to be with him the people begged jesus to leave it's right there in scripture but then we see this guy begging jesus to take him with him interestingly enough jesus doesn't allow the man to go with him but instead he says go home talk to your friends tell them about how much i've done for you and the mercy that has been placed upon you and i believe that this call isn't just for this man i really believe that it's for every man and woman that Jesus has saved and set free from whatever kind of sin. The call is to go home, share Jesus with your friends and family, which is sometimes the hardest people to talk to about Jesus. And it says the Decapolis, that was like a group of 10 cities. And again, most of these were Gentile people living there. And so he's also being sent to go tell people who don't know anything about Jesus. And I feel like that call is on our lives too. So let's just think about this guy. What did this guy actually have to share with anyone? Um, he probably didn't have a great theology about Jesus. I <laughs> mean, safe to say. Uh, he didn't have all the right answers to all the questions. All he simply had was my story, what Jesus had done for me. And I wonder sometimes if we today at Riverview in 2022 make it way too hard in our minds to talk to people about Jesus what if we did what this guy did? We thought, you know, I, I'm not going to worry about having all the answers. I'm just simply going to say what Jesus did for me. I'm going to verbalize how Jesus has tangibly, practically changed my life. It reminds me of John chapter 9 when Jesus heals this man who'd been born blind. And this man, um, he, he comes in. He's being questioned by all these religious leaders. They're asking all these questions. He's like, I don't know. I don't know anything. All I know is that I was blind. Now I see that's all I got. And I think that's more of what Jesus wants us to do, too. What if we took that approach? I don't, I don't know. I don't know all the answers you're asking me. All I know is that I was like this, and now I'm like this. I was struggling with this, and now I don't struggle with this. You know, whatever it is. Because I want us to be a church that is able to verbalize what Jesus has done, to verbalize why we have our hope set in Christ And I want us as a body of believers to grow in our ability to do that. And to help us do that, I came across a challenge this week. um, And I want to share it with you. So here's the challenge for this week. One, take a few minutes this week to write out the story of when you saw God do something powerful on your behalf. Two, after you've written it down, share the story with someone this week. So what are some examples of things you could say? Well, maybe you experienced God's hand in providing for you in a way that, you know, you just didn't see coming. Maybe God healed a broken relationship that just wrecked your heart. Maybe God blessed you with a new job. He just opened up a door, made the right connection, and you're in a place where it feels so good. Maybe God healed your heart, helped you to forgive someone that hurt you so deeply, but that hurt doesn't control your life anymore. Maybe you can finally sleep after not sleeping so long because God set you free from the weight of worry and anxiety that just kept you up night after night. Or maybe it's that God gave you courage and boldness to do something or to talk to someone that you just did not think was possible. Whatever it is, actually get you know, with God and pen and a piece of paper and write out the story, what was happening, what were you feeling, and what did God do, and then share it. And I know God will use it. But I want to say this if you don't have a single story, if you're sitting in this room and you're like, I can't think of a single thing that God has ever done for me, I really want to challenge you to seek your own heart and ask yourself, Have I ever received Jesus and truly surrendered to his lordship in my life? Because When people really invite Jesus into their life and then they surrender to his lordship and they walk in obedience to what he's saying to do, you will have stories. Because when Jesus comes in, he will mess with your life. Then it's up to you if you want to choose to walk in obedience. And if you do, you will have stories. But if you don't have a story or if you're like those people that just rejected Jesus because you were more worried about your bottom line, I want to give you the opportunity today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and to surrender to his um, leading in your life. So would everyone just bow their heads, close their eyes. God, I know that there came a point in my life where I just had to make a choice. like, Who am I going to follow? Am I really going to trust Jesus? And I did not have the answers, but I chose to go for it. And um, God, I pray that if there's any people in here that have not ever made that decision, I pray that they would do it. God, I pray that they would do it today. And so if that's you, if that's you, um, just between you and God, just tell him that. And even just follow me in this prayer. So I'll lead you, if that's you, you can just say it with me. God, I confess that I have sinned. God, I need a Savior, and it's only you. I believe that you died and rose again. I trust you with my life, and I surrender to your lordship over me. Thank you for saving me. Everybody else, let's just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Maybe you're sitting here, you did make that choice, but over the period of time, you have started saying no to Jesus. You've started worrying more about the bottom line. You're not listening. You're keeping him out. If that's you in this room, I just want you to take some time this week, confess that to Jesus. God, I repent of walking my own way. I choose now to walk and follow you. Lord, I just pray over our church. God, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful. I pray that you would help us to slow down When we read it to think about what's happening to be drawn in and that your spirit would then teach us through it God, I pray um, that we would be a church that has our eyes open to what you're doing That has our hearts surrendered to what you're saying and just we want to walk in obedience to you God, I pray that you would use us as a people That really shine the love of christ to our community our family our friends our neighbors all that don't know you that they could also find a relationship with you. God, you are powerful. You are the only one that is worthy of our worship. And so we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.